If you've been with us the last couple weeks, we're in the book of Acts, and uh, we're going to look at the first part of chapter 5 today. So if you want to turn there, I believe it's around page 630 in the the Bible in front of you. Uh, So uh, we use the page numbers because uh, years ago, I was on staff at a church, and and I I had, I don't know if it was an original idea or not, but but, uh, we had a lot of people coming to church that weren't bringing Bibles, and then uh, there was an assumption that if you grew up in the church, you know, you used to sword drills. Anyone ever do the sword drills whenever you were in church? Yeah, you know, so uh, I, I wanted a finger index Bible. My mom had a finger index Bible, which meant that there were the books of the Bible were indented on the side, and I always wanted to take her Bible with me to VBS because I felt like it gave me an advantage, but people like Megan always beat me at the sword drill. Uh, so, but anyway, uh, if you're like me, it, 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 uh, we don't want you to feel like, uh, you're being judged if you don't know where this stuff is in the Bible. The Bible is an awesome book and maybe you haven't had a ton of exposure to it and that's okay. Uh, we just want to, uh, we want to get the word of God in as many hands as possible. And that's why we emphasize it. It's, it's, uh, it's the words of God. So. Yeah, page 630 is roundabout where we'll be. We're actually going to go back a little bit into chapter 4 just so that we can recap and make sense of it. But last week we saw how the religious leaders have really started to become angry and intimidated by the apostles. So now these guys are consumed by the Holy Spirit. They've been preaching and teaching in the name of Jesus. Now they, they, the, God has really upped the ante a little bit because he's, he's using the power of His Spirit in these men to perform miracles. So we saw a man in chapter 3 who was uh, crippled and had sat outside of the city gates for over 40 years and people knew that he couldn't walk. People knew that his legs were crippled. And one day, Peter says, I don't have any money to give you, but I do give you what I have freely in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise and walk. And he does. In front of thousands of people, it causes quite a stir. The religious leaders of the day start to see the foundations of the world they've created for themselves start to crumble. And as any desperate people who start to see the foundations of their own kingdom start to crumble. They start to do whatever they can to self-preserve what they feel like they've made. So that's where we left things off uh, in the story last week. They call Peter and John in and they threaten them. I find it kind of funny, you know, that they threaten them, like, don't you dare speak about Jesus again. They don't really have any teeth behind their threats, but they're giving the threat anyway. You know, it's kind of like the kid on the playground that looks back and says, you're not my dad, right? You know, so Peter and John are like, listen, you, you, uh, you judge for yourself whether we should listen to you or obey God. You can decide what you think is best, but for us, we're going to obey God. And so they give them this threat, and then uh, the threat that they give to Peter and John, it really only serves to bolster the, the followers of Jesus' commitment to Christ and, and the, the, the unity that's developed in the body. It really, as you start to see the religious community of the day start to crumble and people start to see that they're only living out a portion of this and most of it they've created for themselves. And they start to see that there's life to be found in the person of Jesus that's not completely negating everything that the rulers of the, of the religious community live by. It's actually just taking it and making it better. 
So Jesus took the law that these guys had, had sort of messed up by their own traditions and their own rulemaking and their own conveniences, and Jesus comes into the picture and teaches on things like that and says, listen, you see that the Ten Commandments, and they say that you shouldn't murder, but I say there's a heart behind that. It's not just don't kill somebody. It's that if you even think about it in your mind, you've, you've killed them in your heart, and that's just as bad as physically doing. There's a heart behind the letter of the law is what he does. And so now Jesus is, has, has invested and inserted that teaching into the apostles. It's been perfected with the coming of the Holy Spirit. And now these men are going out and they're preaching these messages and they're getting the attention of the people who are looking for hope. And they can't find it in the rigidity of the, legal, the legalist religious leaders of the day. So when Peter and John come out and give a report on what had happened, what happened when you called, got called into the high priest and the Sadducees? Because the last time they took one of our teachers in, they brutally murdered him. And you guys got out, you don't even, there's not even a scrape on you. What happened? And they retell the story. And then they pray. And when they pray, they pray for boldness. They pray, God, we see something coming down the pike that is going to be uncomfortable. We see persecution coming our way. We're starting to see resistance to this message at levels we've personally never experienced before. So I pray that as we continue to live this out, as we continue to preach the gospel, as we continue to live out and model what you've given us through your spirit, that you would give us more boldness They don't pray for protection and safety. They don't pray for, for wisdom as to uh, when to go out and when to speak or what to say. They pray for boldness. And in that situation, I find that to be remarkable, a remarkable prayer. And God is so honored with this prayer that the place that they're praying in actually shakes and quakes because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, in any other circumstance, maybe we would find that to be kind of strange or not believable, but we've already seen God show up through the power of His Spirit in weirder ways than this. And so I'm not going to question how the Holy Spirit chooses to manifest Himself when He chooses to manifest Himself. There's a whole lot more in the Scriptures that we could say is unbelievable if we want to be cynics, but I don't think there's room for you to be a cynic and someone filled with faith at the same time. So we take these things at their word. The place shook because God was so honored in their prayers. And verse 31 of chapter 4, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now where we're going to pick up today is a little bit of where we left off last week. So uh, if you remember, verse 32 to the end of chapter 4 is where we left off last week. It's about a man named Barnabas, and, and, uh, and, and he, he gives away uh, some of the, or all the money that he makes from selling some of his property. Now let's start there, verse 32 of chapter 4, and read through to verse 37 just so we can have a refresher. Now the full number of those who believed excuse me, were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. 
And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levi, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, before we go into chapter 5, it's important for us to see a few things in this part. In this passage, we see a few things happening. One, they're, they're unified, they're together. I don't want to belabor that point, but also don't want to neglect it. When these people were of one mind, filled with the Holy Spirit, they were serving together, they were providing for one another, they were in tune to the needs of each other, and they were making sure that those needs were met. So we get a singled out Barnabas in this, but we see in the wording that he obviously wasn't the only one doing this kind of stuff. Because starting in verse 34, there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. And it's telling you that because that was more common amongst the followers of Jesus than it was uncommon. It was only uncommon outside of the realm of followers of Jesus. It had become the norm within the body of Christ. That I find to be fascinating. And he gives us an example of Joseph. Joseph, who the apostles called Barnabas. I've never caught that before. I've always called him Barnabas. Uh, and I grew up in, uh, in, the, in the fellowship of Grace Brethren Churches, or Caris Fellowship as it's called now, and there was a ministry team called Operation Barnabas, and, and you, you talked about uh, Barnabas, and you, 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 the reason we call it Operation Barnabas is because you would, you would go out and you would be an encouragement, right? Barnabas is referred to in other parts of Acts uh, as Barnabas. But here his name is Joseph, who the apostles call Barnabas. Why that's fascinating to me is that was his nickname. They gave him a nickname, Barnabas. They gave him the nickname Barnabas, which means he's the son of encouragement, meaning that encouragement comes out of him as though he is birthing it. Encouragement comes out of him. It's, it's so much who he is that they want to call him that. They say Joseph is such an encourager that it's like he's giving birth to encouragement. That he is, he is the embodiment of encouragement birthed. He's the son of encouragement. He's the offspring of encouragement. And I find that to be fascinating because we call him Barnabas, but that's his nickname. Nicknames are fun because there's always stories behind them. But this guy's nickname is Son of Encouragement. And he takes, he owns property, obviously, and he sold a field that he owned, and he, and he brought all the money from selling that field, and he laid it at the apostles' feet. Why? Because he gave it to the apostles, and the apostles were able to say, okay, here's the needs amongst the followers of Jesus, and we're going to make sure that nobody is in need, because if people are in need, it distracts them from doing the work of ministry. 
If people are in need, then they have to spend their time trying to make sure that they're meeting their needs. And so if we can remove that from them, that obstacle from them, then we're going to, and we're going to allow that to be a clear pathway for them to do ministry to spread the gospel. So if there's legit needs in the body, which we're going to see that grow over time in Acts, we're going to see the emergence of titled positions in the life of the church, like overseers and deacons, and all of that is really coming out of understanding there are needs in the body that need met through the body of Christ so that ministry can continue. So he brings all of the money that he gets from selling this field and he gives it to the apostles and says, this is your to further the kingdom. That's where we pick up chapter 5. Chapter 5, let, read with me through, chapter 11, through uh, verse 5, uh, chapter 1, verse 11. Let me preface by saying this is an ugly story. But let's go. But a man, now remember, it's talking about... Uh, Joseph, also known by the apostles as Barnabas, has a field, sells it, gives all the money to the apostles. That's where we leave off. That's where the train of thought stops. And then we pick up here. So we have Joseph, also called Barnabas, has a field, sells it, gives all the money for the furthering of the kingdom and lays it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Verse 5, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Verse 7, after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. That's a fun one, right? I don't remember hearing that one on the flannel graph board whenever I was a kid in children's church. Uh, So let's walk through what's happening here. We have Ananias and Sapphira who are obviously associated with the church at some level. I was talking to Dusty about this this week. Throughout Scripture, there's literally millions of people representative in the Bible, but we don't get all of their names. We get the names of people that we're to remember. And so we get the names of Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias and Sapphira are remembered here. Their names are to be remembered here. And so they actually are... Uh, they're 
in the same camp as the other leaders of the church and the other people that are part of the community of faith here. And people know their names, Ananias and Sapphira. This isn't a couple that came off of the street and said, hey, we're very rich. We want to give some of our wealth to you, the church. And they say, oh, okay, can you tell us your name? She tells sort of about yourself. No, when they come forward with the sale of this property, when they come forward with this money, Peter already knows who they are. He's already familiar with them. Now, here's what's happened. They have a piece of land that they want to sell. They've seen what's happened in, when Barnabas does it. Barnabas gets his name mentioned by Luke too, right? So people know that, that Barnabas gave this money. They know that he sold the property and gave all the money. So, and people are talking about him, obviously, because Luke wrote it down. So Ananias and Sapphira get this idea that they're going to sell a piece of property and they're going to tell everyone, including the apostles, that this is all the money we received from selling this field. But it's not. Let's say they sold it for $100,000. They're going to give $60,000 to the apostles and tell them that's what they sold the field for. They're going to pocket forty grand and not tell anybody that they kept it. That's what's happening here. And so he and his wife are on the same page with this plan. So he comes to Peter, Ananias does, and he says, Peter, I just want to let you know, I've been, I don't, I'm, I'm, this is conjecture on my part, uh, I've prayed about it, uh, my wife and I have talked about it, we sold a field, we wanted you to have this $60,000, we sold the field, this is all the money we got for it, we want you to do the same with it that what Barnabas was able to do. Now, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, knows because the Spirit tells him that Ananias is lying. He knows that he's lying. And so he looks at him and he says, "Uh, why would you allow yourself to be filled with the lies of the devil, essentially? Why would you uh, allow, uh, why has Satan filled your heart to lie? is what Peter's exact question is. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie? When you had the field, wasn't it yours? That's what Peter asks. And then when you decided to sell the field, wasn't whatever amount you decided to give at your disposal? You were under no obligation to give all of it back to the church. You were under no obligation to do that. But you wanted people to think that you did. So this isn't about God. This isn't about the furthering of the gospel. This isn't about the furthering of the mission. This is about you. You've lied. Now, I want to say a couple of things. This is not a commentary on God being cruel or or flexing His muscles to just flex His muscles. Cynics have looked at this passage for years and have used it as an example to say that God's just an angry old man. And that's just not true. That doesn't reflect God's character. This is, however, a commentary on the holiness of God. This is a commentary on the holiness of God. So there's, there's two applications I think we need to pull out of this before we break it down. Well, let, let me go a little bit further here. Before we, before we do that, let me just go a little bit further because it's important to note that He says uh, in verse uh, 4, Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? 
You've not lied to man. You've lied to God. You stood before a holy God and you told a bold-faced lie. You didn't lie to me. You didn't lie to all these people. You lied to God. And this is such a serious act that he dies. Like right there, <gasps> drops dead. So the young men come in, they grab his body, they do whatever they need to do, wrap it up, take it outside, and they bury him. There's no viewing, there's no big uh, funeral service, there's no obituary, there's no eulogy where people say nice things about Ananias. He's just dead and gone. So three hours later, his wife comes back from a shopping spree or wherever she's at, and she walks in the room, and before she can even say, where's my husband, Peter says, I want to ask you a question. I want to just ask you a question. Did you sell the field for $60,000? And she says, yes, that's exactly what we sold it for. And Peter says, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? The feet, the, the place where you're standing right now is the same place that your husband dropped dead and you have the same fate awaiting you. The people that carried your husband's body out and buried it are waiting to bury yours. And she breathed her last. She drops dead. They unceremoniously wrap her up, take her outside, and bury her. And that's the end of them. It sounds cruel. It sounds uh, like God is just flexing a muscle because He can. And we see in here that fear, great fear, came upon all who heard it. Great fear came upon all that had heard this stuff. So verse, uh, verse, <clears throat> sorry, verse 5, uh, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. Verse 11, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. So there's two application points we need to take out of this passage. And I think it's important for us to look into this deeper. If we're, first one, if we are followers of Christ, we must speak the truth. We have to be people who speak the truth. John 8, Jesus in His teaching, He says that Satan is the father of all lies. Let's do some math here. Here's what, that's, that's the first part of the equation. That Satan, by Jesus' definition, is the father of all lies. Now compare that real quick to Barnabas' nickname. He's the son of encouragement, meaning that he is so much of an encourager that it looks like he has been birthed out of encouragement. So if Satan is the father of all lies, what does he give birth to? You don't have to whisper it. Yeah. If he's the father of lies, the thing that is his offspring is lies. John 14, 6 is the first part of the, the equation is that Satan is the father of all lies. John 14, 6, Jesus in another part of his teaching says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. So Jesus actually defines himself as the truth. I am the truth, he says. So those are our two integers that we're throwing into the equation, right, for you math geeks. When we tell lies, when we tell half-truths, when we, when we tell shaded truths, anything along those lines, we don't reflect the actual truth. We don't reflect Jesus. 
we actually reflect this part of the equation, the one who birthed the lie. So when we decide that we're not going to be truthful, we decide we're going to tell a little white lie, we decide that we're going to just stretch it a little bit, or the fish was actually this big, or however we want to tell those stories. When we want to embellish, when we want to get glory, when we want to get accolades and get attention and take things away from God by, by making us the center point of the story, that's not being truthful. That's actually giving over to the father of lies. So if we want to say that we are followers of Jesus and the truth does not reside in us, are we followers of Jesus? Look at the energies we've thrown into the equation. We cannot, can we? We cannot say that we are people that are coming out of the truth, Jesus, and live our lives in such a way that most of what we do, some of what we do, parts of what we do, parts of what we say, any part of our human existence reflects the father of lies. This is important stuff. And this is the first time that we see in the existence of the church age in Acts where we see sin start to come into the camp. Believe me, I know it's not the first time we've seen it in the annals of, human, of, of Scripture or of human history. But it is the first time we have record of it coming into the church. It's all been pretty good news for the church this far, other than the persecution that gets started. But we don't see any sin come into the camp. The church is in its purest form at this point. So the first application that we have to wrestle with is that if we're followers of Jesus, we have to be people who speak the truth, people who tell the truth. And the second thing is that followers of Jesus must never value money or personal reputation over holiness. We must never value money or personal reputation over holiness. We should want Jesus' character to shine through us more than anything this world has to offer us. And I know that's the kind of stuff we say all the time, but this story should wake us up and shake us in our shoes at the reality of what it looks like when we don't live like that. Because at the end of the day, Ananias and Sapphira, all they wanted was someone to say, man, that's awesome. You guys are so generous. That's awesome. You guys are such great people. You guys must love Jesus. Look, you sold a field and gave all that money. The whole narrative would have changed if they would have come and said, we sold a field for $100,000. We want to give $60,000 of it to the work of the church. Completely different narrative. So there are people that have said, why do they get such a bad rap? I mean, they gave a lot of money to the church because it had nothing to do with the money. Had everything to do with their heart. Had everything to do with the condition of their heart. See, Ananias claimed to be giving away all the money from his property sale because he valued his reputation and his money more than he valued the truth. He wanted the praise of other people while while keeping a certain amount in his bank account. He wanted to make sure that he was hedging his bets essentially. 
I'm going to give to the work of the church. This is really awesome. And I want people to recognize I'm giving the work of the church. But come on, man, I've owned that property for years. I'm not going to give all of it away. Al Muller says this, The praise of others is a vapid thing, disappearing as soon as it arrives. Money is likewise temporary and fleeting. If we set our hopes on these things, we will find that at best we are sorely disappointed or that at worst we, like Ananias, walk a dangerous path of hypocrisy. A dangerous path of hypocrisy. If Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man comes to the Father but through Him, and we say that we are followers of Jesus, then that means that the way we live, the way we use our money, the way we spend our time, the way we use our words, every part of us needs to reflect Him. Anything apart from that, this is the harsh reality of Scripture, anything apart from that is hypocrisy, unless we own it. If we want to fake it, that's hypocrisy. If we want people to believe something about us that we know isn't true of our inner character and relationship with Christ, that's hypocrisy. And in this moment, more than any other, we should, have, we should see that God sees the heart. God knows the heart of a man. It, it disappears as soon as it arrives, the praise of others. Doug Fields was the youth pastor at Saddleback Church for 17 years. And he said uh, that he, he had resigned to move on to a different ministry uh, that he was working on. And, uh, and so 17 years he had given to his life to youth ministry. And about three months go by, he's not on staff at the church anymore. And he said, I hadn't received, I was at a conference when I heard him say this. He said, I hadn't received so much as a phone call, an email, a text message. I hadn't gotten anything. And nobody had called and said, hey, Doug, how you doing? Hey, Doug, we really miss you at the church. He said, then one day the phone rang and somebody called. It was from the church. And I'm like, yes, someone's finally calling to to say. And what they called was about something that was in the office that they didn't know what it belonged to. And they were like, Doug, can you help us figure out? This was in your old office. Does it belong to something important or can we throw it away? He's like, so I went to a mentor of mine and I said, uh, hey, I'm really upset about this. I think they should have made a bigger deal. By 17 years of my life given to this church, I think it should have been a bigger deal. And he said that mentor filled a bucket with water. And he said, now t- make a fist and stick your fist down in that bucket of water. And he did. And he said, now pull it out. And so he pulled it out and his mentor looked at him and said, now as long as the indentation of your fist lasted in that bucket of water, as long as people should be remembering you. And he said, when we live for the praise of man, that's the kind of disappointment that we live in all the time. When we want to be made much of, we expect the praise of others. We do things because that is our deep-rooted motivator. We want to feel important. We want to feel valuable in this world. And we assign others the responsibility of giving us that. We don't always tell them that, but we assign the people in our lives the responsibility of making us feel important. And then we do what we need to do to make sure that they validate in response 
to what I want them to tell me and what I need them to tell me. And that's exactly what is happening to Ananias and Sapphira. So yeah, it's harsh. But they did two major things wrong here. And I think that we probably fall guilty of at least one of them on a regular basis. First thing they do is they lie to God about what they're going to give back to Him. Just saying it sounds foolish, doesn't it? And yet, if we're being honest, we've probably been guilty of it. The other thing they're guilty of is putting their hope and trust in what people think of them more than what they already know God says of them is true. They weren't giving over or believing in the holiness of God. R.C. Sproul actually wrote a book called The Holiness of God, and this is a quote from it. He said, when we understand the character of God, when we grasp something of His holiness, then we begin to understand the radical character of our sin and hopelessness. Helpless sinners can survive only by grace. Our strength is futile in itself. We are spiritually impotent without the assistance of a merciful God. We may dislike giving our attention to God's wrath and justice, but until we incline ourselves to these aspects of God's nature, we will never appreciate what has been wrought for us by grace. So the first thing that happens amongst the, the church is that they give, they, they, the followers of Jesus uh, see, they, they, they can't value their money or personal reputation over holiness. They can't want the accolades and praise of man because by doing that, you're, obvious, you're, you're portraying that you so obviously don't hold in reverence the holiness of God. Ananias and Sapphira came casually, pompously, arrogantly, before a holy God with a gift, and they lied to Him. And they wanted people to praise them for it. It wasn't about God getting glory. It was about them getting glory. So we need to wrestle with the holiness of God. We need to understand who He is and who He says He is and who He says He, he who, who we, in saying that He is our Lord and Savior, we're saying with our mouths in the moment of redemption that He is our all-sufficient. It's not in that moment that we're denying the Holy Spirit. It's in that moment where it's probably its most pure to us. It's in all the moments thereafter that we can choose not to give God the reverence that's due Him. The other thing that we have to do is we need to respond to God's holiness in the same way that the early church did. The early church, it says, they feared when they heard this report of what had happened to Ananias and Sapphira, great fear came upon them. Now, because of the grace of God that, that is found in Christ, our relationship with God is no longer this, this one of being a guilty offender, uh, someone who is guilty of all the sin. That's not how our relationship with God works. It's not even about some cruel God who's sort of a tyrant and He's just out to get us. God is a, a Father. He's a loving Father. He pursues the good 
of his kids. That's his character. But that doesn't mean that we should not also have a fear of God. We should have a fear of Him. We should stand in awe and wonder at how holy He is. But we should fear His power and might in the same vein. We should fear Him because He, through speaking a word, breathed the whole world into existence as our Creator. That He holds your very breath in His hands. That if Ananias and Sapphira could breathe their last at the whim of God, because the, the sacrifice was not given to them in reverence, given to him in reverence, he can do the same to us. He has that kind of power. He's our Father, yes, but he's also our awesome Lord and Savior. Knowing him as Knowing Him as uh, our Father, who uh, it can't, knowing Him as our Father, it can't negate the appropriate response we need to have to Him being our Lord. There needs to be an appropriate response to His power and authority, even in knowing that He's our Father, who has our good in mind. I got this picture in my head uh, of uh, I, I, at the dinner table if I'm sitting with my kids and uh, there's one that's maybe acting up or not, not listening. and They know that if they have to get up from the table or I have to get up from the table with them, they're going to get a talking to on the steps. And they never like that. They, they, uh, we try not to do it in a forceful way or in an embarrassing way or draw a whole lot of attention to it. We just quietly go over to them, get them, and say, hey, come with me. And then we go in and have a, a little conversation in the front room and try to recalibrate and then come back to the dinner table, right? There are times where I slide out my chair, and that's all it takes. No conversation is needed. And, and that's the picture that I got in my mind is that, that I know what God is capable of. I know that He's never interacted with me that way. I know that He has never chosen to manifest His power like that in my life and curse my sin like He does Ananias and Sapphira, but I also know He's capable of it. And I also know that if I take it lightly, if I treat Him lightly, if I, if I just treat Him casually like Ananias and Sapphira do, then I'm not accepting His holiness. I see Him as like this feeble old man sitting on a throne just saying yes because he's tired. You know, he used to be real aggressive and strong in his younger days. You should have seen God whenever he's in his 30s. Holy cow, that guy was tough. But now he's just an old man. He doesn't care what happens anymore. I think that's some people's view of God. Well, that's how I used to view people. That's how I used to deal with sin. That's how I used to deal with things. But that's not how he does it anymore. So there's two main things that I think we need to pull away from this. Is one, that there are two people here that so obviously wanted to be associated with the church, wanted to be associated with this movement that was happening amongst the people of God. But they wanted to sit at the top of the pyramid. They wanted to be celebrated. They wanted their name on the gold plaque in the foyer. That's what they wanted. 
And they, they, were, they, were, they were striving for that. So they gave under those pretenses. That's the first thing they did wrong is they lied to God and they lied to the church. And in so doing, they denied the holiness of God. You see, the problem is that Ananias and Sapphira wanted the holiness and power of God to be strong enough to save them, but not strong enough to surrender to. That's what they wanted. They wanted a God who could redeem them, but not control them. They wanted a God who would bless them, but not require much of them. And so they created that God for themselves, and they paid a dear price for it. I don't remember the last time I've heard a story like this in, in human history. I think the church found unity around this event. I think they started to realize that this God they were worshiping and giving their lives, had given their lives to was, was serious business. This was not something to take lightly or casually. This was a big deal. And this moment just reinforces that. I tend to think that I'm, I'm just talking about myself. I'm not throwing this on you. But I interact with God a whole lot more casually than I should, far too often. Like He's just a bit part. I needed Him for salvation. I don't need Him to get through my day. I needed Him for salvation. I need Him to leave me alone when I want to sin. I needed Him for salvation, but I, I don't need to really give Him all my wealth. I needed Him for salvation, but I don't need to, you know, invest everything back into this kingdom work. I needed Him, and like Dusty was talking about, it's this for salvation, this for life then. We openly accept that we need God to redeem us. And we receive this amazing gift of salvation and then we close up our hands and say, thank you, God, you did me a solid. I appreciate that. And then we walk away and live however we want. And that's not recognizing the holiness of a loving God who is to be respected, who is to be feared, but is also to be recognized that as a loving Father, He redeemed us from the pit of sin because He chose to, because of His grace. We live in that grace We live in that grace and mercy and forgiveness from a loving God who could at any minute just squash us because we are sinners. He could. And He would be well within His rights to do it. But He chooses not to because of grace and because of love. So I think the question that I was wrestling with the most is, is God worthy? of my life to be lived the way that the apostles were living theirs, the people that were selling all their stuff. I don't want to hear a historical context conversation about how easy it was for them to sell all their stuff and how much difficult and foolish it is for us to sell all our stuff. I think that's a garbage argument. If God calls us to that, are we willing to do it? Is He worthy of that amount of sacrifice? Is He worthy? The answer is He is. He is. That's the answer. But my question that I want to ask you and that I have to ask myself is, is He worthy 
And do you answer that personally the same way that the corporate answer already is? The answer is yes, he is worthy. But to you, living that kind of life, surrendered to your king, is he worthy? God, thank you for being the kind of God who um, shows grace and mercy and love and redemption to us. Thank you for giving us salvation, the gift of your presence. Thank you for giving us forgiveness. Thank you for leading us and guiding us and allowing us the, the privilege of being obedient to a loving God. And we know that sin is missing the mark. And we know that we miss the mark. But I pray that we don't ever take uh, for granted your holiness. God, when you, when you indwell us with your spirit, it's not like you only give it to us in pieces over time. You fill us with your spirit. I pray that sin gets flushed out more and more and we give over to the power of your spirit more and more. And we can hear your voice directing us to be and do what you call us to be and do. So that whenever the question comes up, is he worthy? We can say, he is.